Hello, this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is Charles Arthur, a journalist, author, and speaker who's been writing and reporting on science and technology for over 30 years. He was The Guardian's technology editor. He's covered the rise of tech giants like Facebook and Google, artificial intelligence, WikiLeaks, and hacking. He's published world scoops on Amazon and BlackBerry. He was a visiting fellow at the Technology and Democracy Project at Cambridge University, examining the effects of the internet and social media on political polarisation. And he's brought all this together in his third book. It's Social Warming, How Social Media Polarises. It's an insightful and important exploration of the pervasive effects of social media on politics and society, and a call for us to pay attention to the world's most compelling addiction. Charles Arthur, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Social warming. The shape of the problem is what you examine in your prologue. And you say you you make the comparison to global warming. Tell us why. Well, global warming is one of these things where everyone contributes in just a very small way. We're all burning fossil fuels. We're all doing things which have this very small and yet cumulative effect, which has uh, a globe-spanning huge, uh, very hard to turn back effect, one where it's very difficult to give up burning fossil fuels. You know, we all like having cars that we drive to the supermarket. And even when we drive our car to the supermarket, we think, well, I'm not really making things worse. I might mean, it's only a very little trip, even though it is. And the scale of the problem is very hard to imagine when you're just looking at it down at the individual level. You have to look at it at a much higher level to really grasp what is happening. And I mean, obviously, we, we're becoming rather more aware of that. With social warming, and the reason why I made the, the, the analogy, I guess, in, in naming it, again, it's the sort of thing where at the very individual level, you think, well, me having a little Twitter spat, that's not making much difference. And, you know, if my, if my uncle is posting racist things on Facebook, OK, but you know, that's just a little, you know, that's a bit stupid and it'll probably get moderated. But no one really pays attention, do they? But my point is that all these are little cumulative things which all increase the friction in society, which make us bump up against each other, which make us a bit more angry with each other, which make us a bit more apt to be uh, separated into tribes who are warring tribes over whatever subject it is, because you can always find a subject on which you disagree. So everyone gets a bit angrier, even at the same time as you have the convenience of all the information that you're getting from all the social networks that you're able to access more than you ever could. At the same time as all that is true, you're also bumping into more people with whom you disagree. And that is what I describe as social warming. It's this tendency for everyone to get even more annoyed. And it can spill over into real world effects, which is the more important thing, I think. Mm. Now, as I said at the top, you've been covering this technology for, for 30 years. Did you ever, right at the beginning, think it could become as huge and as all pervasive as it is now? When the smartphone really started to come around, when Apple uh, introduced the iPhone, it seemed, I mean, it's always a problem. All these things are just incremental. You never quite get the, no one says, oh, this is going to be absolutely gigantic and therefore. Uh, So when, when Apple introduced the iPhone, it seemed like they were going to be a niche player because there were really big companies like Nokia, which dominated the smartphone, well, the smartphone space as it was then, but they dominated mobile phones. And people couldn't quite conceive that you'd move to this world where rather than just being able to send texts and phone people, you'd be able to do everything as you walked around. 
In the same way with social networks, I remember writing about Facebook very early on and it was uh, a space where there wasn't very much in the way of spam. The same was true for Twitter very early on. And the idea that it would become pervasive was a bit strange because why would people do this? You know, we thought it was more something that people who were deeply into technology would be interested in. So yeah, it's one of these things where you can't you can't quite see the see the summit, I guess, until you uh, until you climb up the hill. You know, you don't get a view of the mountain or the forest from close by. You, you have to step back again, and that's always the problem with technology. Some of these things just fritter out. Some of them just you know they they don't actually turn up. So. The experience of writing about technology for a long period is one where you see people hype things up enormously and they go to nothing. And then you see people hype things up enormously and they become gigantically. And it's very difficult to tell what the difference is. And I mean, at the beginning, there were predictions that it would all be fabulous creating social movements and so on. And in fact, in Egypt, that appeared to be a positive result of of early social media with the uh, overthrow of Mubarak. There was a lot of optimism around in 2011 when you had the Arab Spring and social networks, which were comparatively new. I mean, Facebook was set up in 2004, Twitter was set up in 2006. And you had then in uh, the Middle Eastern countries, many of which were under authoritarian or dictatorial regimes, as they got the internet, they suddenly discovered that there was a, a sort of subversive effect of these social networks which could then be used to organise, to find people who were similarly disaffected with their rulers. And that did help organisation for the Arab Spring through Facebook and Twitter. So there was a lot of optimism in the West about the positive effects that these could uh, that these could have, which to some extent slightly overlooked the fact that you were still overthrowing a regime, which is not an easy thing to do. You have to, you know, there's a theory that it takes about one third of the population to be uh, really disaffected with a regime of whatever stripe to overthrow it. And if you can do that, then you could possibly get the same effects in a democracy if you, if you really tried hard at it. There was a lot of um, perhaps willful ignorance about the the destabilizing effects that we were actually seeing there because they were overthrowing authoritarian regimes. And we think that's fine. But if you're overthrowing one sort of regime, you could overthrow another. And, and if you're mobilizing all the, the people who are willing to go out and fight against the police in the streets, then you seem to have found quite a powerful force and mobilized it through social networks. Mm, mm. You have a chilling chapter, The Watcher Beneath Your Screen. This is about amplification and algorithms and, and machine learning. Tell us a little bit more about how that works. So all the social networks rely on you spending time on them because the way that they make their money is by showing you adverts. The reason is that uh, the alternative they would have would be to charge you a subscription, but not everyone can pay or afford or wants to spend the money on a subscription. So the simplest way to monetize it is to use your time because every person gets the same allocation of time per day. You all get 24 hours. So if you can get more of those people's attention, then you can show them more adverts. The way to do that is to get them to spend more time uh, looking at your network. And it turns out that the thing that we as humans find the most fascinating is things that outrage us, things that we find shocking or so unusual that we feel almost compelled to dwell on them and often to pass them on. And the algorithms behind these systems don't know that's what triggers us. 
they don't know that's why it works, but they do know what we spend time on and what we dwell on. And they're all tuned so that they can see the things that we respond to and will then try to show us more of them. So they amp up the outrage factor for us. They amp up the spend your time here factor for us. And the the, the whole algorithmic uh, systems behind these, the, the computer code, which is tuned to watch what it is that you spend your time on, is so developed now that, uh, for example, with TikTok, uh, which is the, the fastest rising of the social networks, uh, it can now figure out what sort of things you will find most engaging within about a minute of you first starting on the app. So the uh, algorithmic systems behind these are, are now so much more powerful than I think ever could have been conceived 15 years ago uh, when Facebook really hit on the idea um, that we're effectively at their mercy. Mm. And is there a way then that people can actually influence how algorithms work? It gets increasingly difficult. I mean, obviously, there are people who write the algorithms, but to a large extent, they're now giving that function over to machine learning systems, which are able to tune themselves uh, in line with what their targets are. So, for example, Facebook uh, had a problem with terrorists, effectively, setting up Facebook accounts and trying to recruit people. So it set up a, a, an algorithmic system which would try to identify people who were terrorists and uh, would try to uh, close down their accounts or flag their accounts for human moderators to look at. At the same time, Facebook had another algorithmic system which was trying to uh, engage as many people as possible to join what it called groups, that is sort of like-minded people who had shared interests and would often suggest to people, hey, you know, here's a group of people who you might find interesting, why don't you join this group? So you had these two algorithms which were acting in parallel, which were completely unknowing of each other. And what happened was that it turned out the algorithm for suggesting people join groups was a lot better at doing its work and had a higher priority within Facebook, was, was given you know, more power in effect to, to uh, recommend things than the anti-terrorism one was. So what turned out to be the case was that in Germany, for example, an internal study at Facebook discovered that about one third of the people who'd been recruited to far-right extremist groups, uh, groups with a capital G inside Facebook, had been recommended by the group recommendation algorithm, whereas the uh, anti-terrorism system, which should have flagged those extremist accounts, had lagged behind. It was not as powerful. Uh, so the it's very much about what sort of priority you give these things. But yes, there's, there's, a, there's an extent to which they're almost out of control of, of the humans behind them, because it becomes a question of, well, what are, what are the inputs that you're giving it? What are the, the uh, priorities you're giving it? Mm. Now, most politicians use social media. How has it influenced the way politics is, is done these days? Well, it's, uh, it's very interesting. And I think the UK is the interesting case study here, where um, after the, uh, the 2016 election in the US, everyone realised that email was a very insecure and rather slow, actually, way of communicating with colleagues. I mean, in the UK, obviously, in the 1990s, late 1990s, there used to be pages, uh, which was basically a one-way system where the centre could communicate with individual MPs. But now uh, MPs wanted to have a quicker way in this in the information age to communicate with each other. And they set up lots of WhatsApp groups, both within the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. And 
within the Conservative Party, once they, because they were in power and sort of from 2010 onwards, they were a bigger group and so they got lots of small splinter groups within the Conservative Party, uh, such as, for example, the so-called European Research Group, who were very right-wing, very anti-European and were trying to find arguments for why we should be out of Europe. And there's a very interesting phenomenon that happens when you have small closed groups which all agree on the same thing, which is that uh, as a a professor called Cass Sunstein uh, showed back in the 90s, uh, always happens, which is that they drive themselves towards an extreme of that view. So it doesn't matter whether you were to get a bunch of people together who argue that guns should be restricted or argue that abortions should be restricted or argue that abortions should be allowed all the time. If you get that group of people together in a room or to go in some sort of communication system, they will all start to gravitate towards the most extreme version of that view that they all agree on. And within politics, we saw this in the UK, where the ERG in particular started to drive itself towards a much more extreme position on what should happen with uh, the exit from the European Union, with uh, Brexit, once that had been voted for in 2016. And it's now got to the point where MPs effectively can be ostracised from their party in WhatsApp groups where, where they're, they're shut out if they don't agree with the with the position. That actually happened to the Cabinet Minister Nadine Dorries because she was going against the views of a number of her uh, Tory colleagues in trying to back Boris Johnson. It's, it's become one of these things where it's essential to them where they uh, all rely on it. But at the same time, I think that uh, some of them are starting to realise that it has this a sort of hardening effect where it becomes more difficult to become to become sort of generous to others even within your own party because you're seen to be falling outside the tribal group within your little WhatsApp group. Mm. And I mean, it's also really interesting to look at Twitter and see how much that shows us about politicians. I mean, you talk about Nadine Dorries, for instance, and she does on occasion uh, tweet some pretty dumb stuff, which is which is often sort of picked up. And and it's it's a little insight into the into a politician's mind from members of the public that one wouldn't normally have access to. Nadine Doris is a really interesting example, I think. And I mean, I, I have a substack, a social warming substack, where I write occasional articles uh, now to go along with the, the paperback. And uh, I was looking at MPs this week and the way that um, there's a sort of small group at the top. If you if you lay out how many Twitter followers they have, it goes from Johnson, who has something in the order of, uh, I think, two or three million, and uh, goes down to a guy called Alan Dorans, who has fewer than a thousand. But there's, there's a sort of a small group at the top who have a very large number of Twitter followers and who are really quite active on Twitter and get a lot of feedback. And a lot of that is down to how extreme are the tweets that you put out? How much reaction can you get? Because that sort of thing tends to get more of a response. It tends to get more people following you because they're looking for what is the latest thing that you know, Nadine Doris or whoever has said. And one gets the impression that there's a sort of performative element to it, that uh, Nadine Doris possibly rather likes the attention that she gets from this because she doesn't do that many broadcast interviews. And you know, to some extent, Twitter is her broadcast forum. I mean, it's hugely ironic 
that the person who, uh, you know, as we record, is the Secretary of State for uh, Culture, Media and Sport, who's meant to be piloting the online harms bill, uh, which aims to get people to be nicer to each other, in effect, when they're online and especially on social media, is also a person who's been uh, pressured by her parliamentary colleagues to remove a retweet she did of, of uh, Rishi Sunak stabbing Boris Johnson in the back, a, a sort of Photoshop picture. I mean, the illusion was to, zero, you know, to Caesar and Brutus, but given the history that there's been of MPs being attacked uh, and in some cases killed in knife attacks, uh, it was just rather ill-judged. And it's almost like there are sort of two wolves fighting in Nadine Doris. You know, there's, there's the sensible minister and there's the uh, slightly alarming Twitter user. Yes. And I mean, one thing that Twitter has done is has allowed politicians and indeed all of us to circumvent the traditional media and speak directly to the public. What impact has this had on traditional media? Well, for traditional media, Twitter was at first the most amazing blessing, um, because if you knew about it, then you could you could use it before other people realised it was around. And so back in sort of 2007, 8, 9, 10, when it was largely desktop based because the smartphone hadn't really taken off, it was a terrific way of being able, as a journalist, to find sources who you wouldn't otherwise have been able to uh, to track down and to see news events happening. So, for example, when um, the plane ditched in the Hudson in 2009, that was on Twitter first, and a picture of that was on Twitter first. It beat all the mainstream media networks by about 15 minutes. That was an epochal moment, really, in terms of showing what a worldwide network that anyone could access and could put news on could do. And, I mean, I often say with Twitter that if it didn't exist, then you'd have to invent it because it is so useful. It's so useful to have this network which will you know, let you put news out there uh, from an anonymous account, just, just tweet something out and uh, let the world know about an event that's happening. But at the same time, for media organisations, that means, well, what is their function? And a lot of journalists, I think, have found themselves trapped in the question of, well, if I have something that's dramatic and new... Do I put it on Twitter first? Because that will mean that I actually beat all my rivals. Or do I do it for my publication first? Because that then means that we should get the attention coming to uh, my media site. And in my examination in, in the book, In Social Warming, I looked at some of the effects uh, during the 2019 general election in the UK, where obviously during an election, you want to be able to tell people the breaking news and so on. But there was, a, there was an incident at a hospital where the health secretary claimed to have been assaulted by uh, protesters from Labour. Turned out not to be true, but three journalists, so one from ITV, one from uh, the BBC and one from The Sun, all put out tweets insisting that this was true early on before they got the corrected version of what was the case. And it caused a bit of a firestorm. And my point was that if Twitter hadn't been available to them, if they'd had to go through the normal processes of actually getting it laboriously written up, checking it uh, and publishing it on their website or on their, uh, you know, on, the, on their paper, they would not have actually gone ahead and done that. That would never have been uh, something that was the case. It wouldn't have been known about because they would have discovered the truth. And that's one of the big problems of Twitter is that it's one of those sort of, it's not even the first draft of history. It's, a, it's the first draft of what you saw go past in the street. And that's not necessarily going to be accurate. 
Who decides what's true? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. I mean, that's that's a deep philosophical question for our times, isn't it? Uh... But in terms of what's posted, I mean, in, in terms of policing it. Um, so, for instance, I, I mean, you, you write about conspiracy theories blooming on, on social media. And at some point, the companies, they have laid out regulations for this. Yes, the, uh, the the question of what is true is one that a lot of the companies take quite a quite a hands off approach to, and they tend to not bother about the question of whether it's really true that your grandma went and stole a whole lot of food from the supermarket. But uh, when it came to things came to things like coronavirus and the, the how dangerous uh, COVID might be, they suddenly got much more interested in it because uh, I think they recognised the, the danger from the pandemic. And to some extent, both Facebook and Twitter and uh, and YouTube, which of course is a, is a sort of proto-social network because you have followers and followings and so on, they all took the view that they should actually be more proactive in deciding what was true about uh, a, a medical scientific topic, which was quite a shock in many ways to a lot of the people who'd been used to just saying any old sort of thing, especially to people who'd been uh, anti-vaccine before the vaccines were such a life and death thing in the same way was such a thought such a daily thing so yeah they 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 all suddenly moved against uh, a number of people who were as they saw it spreading misinformation and um, suddenly it became them they were the ones who decided what was true although they tended to again to outsource it because they don't like they don't like being the ones who really uh, have the pin the, the blame pinned on them they would give it to fact-checking organizations which could then if things went all south could uh, could be blamed so what's the solution? <laughs> ah, the solution. The solution, what's the solution to social networks? I mean, to some people, it is actually just deleting their account. And, and one sees a growing number of people who are spending less time on social media. That they, they sort of think of it a bit of, it was a bit of a sort of a thing, and now it's less of a thing. So to many people, you know, the solution is actually, yeah, we don't, we don't care anymore. But in terms of regulation, in terms of stopping social warming, in terms of stopping these effects, my suggestion is that actually you just limit the size of these networks, that, that the problem comes about because they get so big First of all, they can't moderate. It becomes impossible to moderate. The problem uh, in terms of interactions that you need to uh, moderate and the potential for interactions that you need to moderate, it grows geometrically as the size of the network grows arithmetically. So if you have a network of 100 people and you're dealing with the interactions between them, if you go to a network of 200 people, suddenly you've got four times as many potential interactions and you'd have to scale up your moderation by a factor of four. But no company that's only growing in size by, it's only doubled in size, is going to want to quadruple the amount of money it's spending on something else. And so all these networks, as they get bigger, tend to lag behind in terms of how their moderation goes. So my suggestion is that you just you just say, that's okay, you have a limit of 250 million, for example, users in a one uh, geography. Uh, so that would mean Facebook would have pretty much all of North America sewn up in Europe, you know, sort of ditto. But you don't allow the two different Facebooks to interact. You actually have to keep them separate because otherwise the moderation problem gets out of hand. And we've seen it get out of hand with things like the January 6th insurrection, where although the actual flashpoint itself of people invading the Capitol may not have been organised directly on Facebook, the whole... Uh, sort of raging anger that was building up, which led to those people being there on that day, 
did generate on Facebook through a movement called Stop the Steal, which began pretty much directly after the November 2020 election and was allowed to grow in gigantic Facebook groups where Facebook was aware of it and didn't do anything about it because it said, well, maybe these are just people you know, expressing their free speech and you know, they feel a bit upset about it. Maybe we should just let them. That's a failure of moderation. It's a failure to see what the future is going to look like. And if you had a smaller network, possibly you would have been able to take a more active view on the moderation that's necessary. Charles, really fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's been, uh, been a great experience. So Social Warming, How Social Media Polarises Us is by Charles Arthur. It's published by One World and it's out in paperback now. And uh, you can find Charles on Twitter. And of course, as he says, he has his Substack. So all of that information there too. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Thanks to the producer, Nora Hull, and researcher Lillian Fawcett. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>